We are in Ephesians. I invite you to take out your Bible, uh, even more important when there won't be any scriptures on the screens, uh, for you to have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, take out your phone, and all you have to do is Google uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and you'll have a scripture today. So I'm starting in verse 11 of Ephesians 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, circumcision is something that is done by human hands. Remember at that time, You were separate from Christ, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit, and consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Now, keep that open in front of you, because we're just going to walk through this Scripture this morning, and let us pray as we do that. Heavenly Father, there is a mystery that we read in these verses not a mystery for us to solve. It's a mystery for us to receive this good news of how you are inviting all people to come to you and to be a part of your family, to be included instead of excluded, to be in fellowship instead of in loneliness and to be in your presence, and to be filled with your Spirit. And we pray that you would make this true for us, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts as we turn to your Word, and that you would be working this truth into our lives this morning and in the life of our church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking through Ephesians uh, over months of 
May and Junish. Um, and uh, we're noticing how this book helps us to see very important things in life differently. Uh, at the very beginning of our series in Ephesians, we saw how Paul's writing helps us to see our lives differently. Um, how this book helps us to see society differently. Last week, we looked at how this helps us to see our relationships differently. And today, how does it help us to see the church differently? What is the church? That's a good question for us to start with today. Several decades ago, not so much today, but several decades ago, if you were to ask that of someone, someone might answer like this. Well, the church is uh, where you go to receive, to receive moral instruction. Um, it's, it's, it's part of my social responsibility to go um, to, to church. That was kind of a common answer maybe 50 years ago or so. Not so much today. Fewer and fewer people are seeing church as part of just what they do or kind of their social responsibility. It's probably a good thing because the church is certainly um, much, much, much more than that. Today, yes, people, why do you go to church? Perhaps a more common answer would be something like this. Well, the church is uh, where I go to spiritually connect with God, where I go to be rejuvenated, where I go to pray, to have this personal connection with God. That might be a more common answer today of why people go to church. What we're going to see is that itself is an incomplete answer of what the church is. Um, So we're going to look at four statements that describe what the church is. And in this passage, Paul begins by describing this human predicament and its alienation. I want you to look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, without God in the world. So notice those three words that describe alienation. You were separate from Christ. You were excluded. You were foreigners. You were aliens. You were alienated from Christ, from God, and from hope even. Had no hope, had no God in this world. Now, those words, separate, excluded, foreigners, those could be words that you may have experienced um, at any point in your life, depending on your circumstances, your situation. You may have been at an event, for example, uh, where you felt like you were separated, that you were excluded from everyone else. Maybe an event where you, hadn't, you didn't know anyone else in the room, and everyone else appeared to know one another, and everyone else, or no one else, made any attempt to include you or to reach out to you. Have you been in a, in a situation like that and felt separated, excluded, and as a foreigner. What's maybe even more uncomfortable than that is when you're in a room with people that you know and you are not made to feel included, but rather feel separated, excluded, or as a foreigner. This is, this is a human predicament um, that this exclusion... Um, from God. And 
only God can step in and do something about that predicament of alienation and exclusion. And um, that predicament, as I mentioned, it leads to um, this, this very horrible, terrible result at the end of verse 12. You are without hope and without God in the world. And as Paul writes this scripture, he has in mind uh, an alienated group of Christians that he's writing to in Ephesians. He has in mind people of non-Jewish descent who are putting their trust in Christ, who are now relating to Christians of Jewish descent. And the Christians of Jewish descent are the ones who identify mostly, just because it's part of their Jewish ancestry, um, identify with this idea of being God's chosen people. And the question is, how can these non-Jewish Christians really be included in God's chosen people? And I want you to think of the storyline, the Old Testament storyline of God's chosen people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, for us to really see how significant this uh, question was for these ancient people. How could a person of non-Jewish descent, putting their trust in Christ, be a part of God's chosen people? Because the storyline, the significance of being God's chosen people to the ancient Jews, uh, it's just hard to exaggerate how significant that was for them. The significance goes all the way back to God's call to Abraham in the book of Genesis. God selected Abraham as the individual to whom God would reveal himself. And God commanded Abraham to trust and follow him and to make this step out of faith to go where God said to go, except God didn't tell him where he would go. So Abraham and his wife, Sarah, a few servants, they left. They left their family, they left their, their homeland, and they just followed God to an unknown place. What a story. It was the Israelite story. And, and, and God brought them to the land that would ultimately be the promised land for Abraham's descendants. But God wasn't done in delivering promises giving promises and delivering them to Abraham because at this point, Abraham had no descendants, did he? He had no children. And, you know, if you're a little newer to that story, you might think, well, what's the problem? Because Abraham and Sarah, well, they could just, they could just have some, some children, couldn't they? Uh, we know how that works. Just have some children, Abraham and, and Sarah. Uh, but it's not that easy because at this point, Abraham is almost 100 years old and Sarah is 90 years old. And the truth is they had been trying for decades, probably seven or eight decades, they'd been trying to have children with no success. So the promise and the delivery of a child indeed would be only something that God, that something that only that God could do. And when Abraham is 100, he receives this son, Isaac, this miraculous birth that was a part of the Israelite story is God's chosen people, descendants, a people to be a part of. 
and for God to lead his people and for God to be on their side. And so whenever the, wherever the Israelites went, they had God with them. They would take this, this portable tent, the, you know, the tabernacle, they'd set it up and they would worship at the temple and God said, I will, I will be there. I will be there with you. This is the beginnings of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people that these Jewish Christians identified with. They were special because God chose them, and God did that for no other nation. And Israel Israel did not have to prove themselves to God to be picked. God just picked them. Just picked them. Even though they were the smallest the least significant of all the nations. It's kind of like in sixth grade PE when the two teams are being chosen by the all-star team captains and, you know, there's a group of kind of A-plus athletes standing over here just ready to get selected and maybe some B-minus athletes over here that, you know, know they're going to have to wait their turn. And, and then there's the group of non-athletes over here knowing, it's going to be a while before we, we hate the selection process. And behind, and behind that, that group of non-athletic kids is the one that just kind of is like, I, I'm the smallest and the weakest of them all. And no one's going to pick me. I'm going to just be assigned to one of the teams at the very end. It's like that scenario. And the all-star team captain looks at that kid first of all and says, I pick you for my team. That's what God did to the Israelites. He went to the smallest, least significant of the people and said, or the the nations, and said, I pick you to be my people. That was their story. They were special because God had picked them out of all the other nations. And Paul is saying, now God is bringing other people into that story. And if you were one of the Jewish Christians having a talk with God, you might say, God, why would you do that? Why, Why? This is my story. This is... I'm a part of this, so why would you, why would you, bring, why would you want to bring other people into that, into that story? Because we're the special ones that you've picked. And God says, yeah, but now I'm picking more. So God's doing something much, much, much bigger here. Verse 15, let's look at verse 15. It says that Jesus is breaking down these walls of hostility between people. So verse verse 15, Jesus is breaking these walls of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, out of the Jewish Christians, the non-Jewish Gentile Christians, thus making peace. See, the law with its commands and regulations refers to the part of the law that God gave Moses and the Israelites to set themselves apart as this unique people, like the the commandment for circumcision, uh, the the laws that dictated their Sabbath day celebration, their dietary laws. They were laws that were meant to distinguish the Jewish people from non-Jews by indicating who was in and who was out. And Jesus is tearing down those laws, thus creating unity. Verse 
15 says Jesus broke down the wall of hostility by making inert. That's really the word there. It's making inert, inactive, the regulations of the ceremon- those ceremonial points of the law. But Jesus did more than that on the cross. He didn't just remove the, the, or make inert the ceremonial points of the law. He brought reconciliation not just between the Jews and the Gentiles, but also our reconciliation between, between us and, and God by making inert, inactive, the accusatory and the condemning power of the moral points of the law. The law that, as Christians, we would say, yeah, we still need to follow that law. The, the moral law, the, the laws of showing love for neighbor and for God. Well, Jesus makes inert the accusatory and the condemning power of the moral points of the law. Here's the good news. Jesus' death on the cross makes it possible for you to have right standing with God. In other words, when we break the moral law as Christians, God is not accusing us of being wrongdoers. He's not condemning us breaking those moral points of the law. Jesus' death on the cross makes it possible for us to have a right standing with God. Through your faith in Christ... When you break the moral law, God does not accuse or condemn you. So this is how Jesus has removed the enmity of the law. The alienation that happens with the ceremonial law, alienation between groups, and the alienation that happens between us and God, because of our sin. And Jesus removes the condemning nature of the moral law. So look at verse 16. Jesus died on the cross that he might make a new humanity. I want to point out one word to you. Um, if you have the, the ESV this morning, you'll see this word in your Bible. If not, I'll point it out to you. Verse 16. I'm going to, I will have the, why am I reading it from my NIV Bible? I need to read it here in my notes. The ESV version. That Jesus died on the cross, that he might make a new humanity and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And here's, come, here's the word, thereby killing the hostility. I just want to point out what Jesus did on the cross. He killed the hostility that exists. Between one another. Hostility that alienates people from God and that alienates people from one another. That's the enemy that Jesus kills on the cross. Satan and the powers of evil thought that they were killing Jesus on the cross when in actuality Jesus was killing the weapon of the enemy that separates hatred, hostility, enmity. Jesus killed that on the cross because he's creating this new humanity. So what is the church? Here's where we get to some of the fill-ins in our sermon note sheet. I'm going to give you four statements about the church. The church is God's new humanity. 
God's new humanity where we live with one another in a completely different way. Now, with reconciliation instead of alienation. The church is God's new humanity that is a part of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. It's God's purpose for his church to bring his reconciling ways into the world. Paul gives three explanatory statements about the church that can maybe help us understand that a little bit, how we're this new humanity that's, that's living in this completely new way with one another, a reconciling way. So move to the second point in your note sheet. The church is the citizenship of God's kingdom where we promote God's values. So look at verse 19. I'll go through that one more time, but look at 19 in your Bibles. Verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. See, that's language of alienation. You're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. The church is the citizenship of what? Of God's kingdom, where we promote God's values. It's really interesting that Paul uses the word citizenship as he's writing to the Christians in Ephesus because uh, city pride in Ephesus was uh, running sky high at this point. I think that the city of Houston, you might think differently than me on this, but I think there's a lot of Houston pride in our city. In Ephesus, it would have been very, very similar. Ephesus claimed to have one of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was, uh, it was much, much bigger than the, uh, the temple to the Greek gods in Athens, the Parthenon, much bigger. The temple of Artemis in, 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 uh, in Ephesus was over one, it was like a, about the size of one and a half football fields in length and in width. So just, just picture that with 127 columns that surrounded it, each column was 65 feet tall. It was made of solid marble. And it was the Ephesians' temple. It was in their city. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 of the city leaders. Uh, when, when, When the apostle Paul was helping to build this church in Ephesus, the city leaders felt threatened by Paul, felt that Paul was threatening uh, their goddess Artemis. But not just Artemis, the whole city of Ephesus, because city pride was running sky high in Ephesus. And you can read about this story in Acts chapter 19. It's just just a fascinating story. When the entire city erupts for two solid hours of chanting to one another against Paul, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
They felt threatened by Paul because they thought Paul was against their city. And so for two hours, they're shouting at Paul. They're shouting to one another, but they're shouting at Paul. Great is Artemis, our goddess, of the Ephesians. So Paul is talking about citizenship here. What are all those Ephesians thinking about? Their citizenship to the city Ephesus, where city pride is sky high. And Paul says, you have a new citizenship. You are not primarily a citizen of Ephesus, nor the Roman Empire. You are first and foremost God's kingdom with God's people. And so therefore, you are to promote not the values of the city of Ephesus that you're so proud of, but God's values, the values of God's kingdom. What values are those? Love for neighbor grace, forgiveness, putting others first, justice. That's what justice is, is putting the needs of others before your own needs. These are the values of God's kingdom, reconciliation. You are citizens, indeed, of God's kingdom, not of Ephesus. You are to experience the benefits of living in his kingdom and then promote those values to the world. Next statement about the church. The church is God's family where we love one another. So let's look at verse 19. I already read that. Oh, let's look at the end of verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and citizens, but, end of verse 19, members of God's household. What does that mean that we're members of God's household? Well, it means that we're a family. Um... Our family here. We're not, and not just a family here at Hope Church, but we are a family with, with all Christians. It doesn't matter if they're at Hope Church or St. Bernadette's Church or Clear Lake Presbyterian Church. I'm just thinking of El Dorado churches. Clear Lake Bible Church or Clear Lake Baptist Church. I mean, that's our family. That's our family. What, what, makes, what makes a family relationship different than other relationships? Let me suggest this. A family relationship is one where you express loving loyalty despite differences. You express loving loyalty despite differences. Because as you know, as you think of your own brothers and sisters, oh, you can be radically different, can you? I mean, you can... You can you can talk to your brother, or you can be living with your brother, and there'll be days when you're like, I have no idea what family you are from, because you're not from my, you're, you're, you're not from around here, are you? You can, you can think of your family members. There are times when we just seem like we're on different planets. But despite those differences, you express loving loyalty. And you are committed to your family members, no matter what. Family members that might not act like I do, dress like I do, think like I do, vote like I do, like what I like. But I am committed to loving loyalty, despite our differences. That's what it's like to be in the church family. And something happens when we are living out the values of of God's kingdom 
right? Grace, forgiveness, this loving loyalty, despite differences. And, and, and something happens when, when we choose to reconcile with one another, even when we are at odds with one another, instead of living this alienation and turning away from one another and withdrawing or leaving when we embrace someone who is very different than I am, just so by embracing that person, I can include them in God's family, something happens. And let's look at what happens next in verse 21. Something happens, something that only God can do. Paul's next statement about the church in verse 21 says this. In him, the whole building is joined together, reconciled instead of alienated from one another, and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So, last statement about the church. The church is God's temple where we experience union with God. That's what happens when we live the reconciling life instead of the alienating life when we reach out to people who are radically different and say, I'm going to be lovingly loyal to you. We're built together and we become this holy temple where we experience union with God. I do believe that the church is about an experience of God. It's about being united with God's Holy Spirit. But the path towards this experience with God is windier than you would Expect it to be or want it to be. See, a a lot of American Christianity thinks the pathway to this experience with God is to to go to a place that meets my preferences so that I can have this experience with God. So I look for a church that has the worship style that I like, the preaching style that I like, the programming that I need, the morning schedule that fits my schedule, you know, a place that has its act all together where the, the computer doesn't break on a Sunday morning and there's no words on the screens, because that would, that, would, that would get in the way of my experience with God. That is, that is the cynical, perhaps, but I think it's not too unrealistic. A large view of what the church is in American Christianity. See, the thought is, that view is, when everything is how I like it, I'll experience God there. And let me tell you, that is not God's approach at all, zero. None of that is God's approach. Look at verse 22. This, this concept of this personal experience with God, that, and that's what church is all about. That's just not God's, that's not God's plan. And we see it in verse 22. Verse 22 says this, And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. And the you in this verse, unsurprisingly, it should be to us, is plural. You all together. Paul is not talking about little individual temples. 
where people are having this personal experience with God. You all together are being built together to be this dwelling place where God comes and lives by his Spirit. That is a building that God puts together by bringing very different people together. Can I, can I finish with, I'll make it short. Um, one of my favorite stories, um, is, when I say it's one of my favorite stories, uh, I think the point of it is, it's one of my favorite points. It's actually a story that I'm going to have to refer to my notes because it's not on the tip of my tongue. But um, I thought of this story actually this morning as we were kind of making kind of final changes to this. I thought of this story. And I... I want to share it. So, Tony Campolo. You know Tony Campolo, lesser known today, better known two decades ago. Um, he's, he's a great storyteller. He's a pastor and a, and a, and a, and a teacher. And uh, Tony Campolo had to uh, speak in, at a conference in Hawaii. So he's flying from the East Coast all the way to Hawaii. And a lot of jet lag in there. He wakes up at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he's hungry because he's on East Coast time. And so he goes out to a place where he can get some food, and all he finds is this grungy little cafe down the, the street. And the, there's, there's no tables. There's just some stools on kind of the, the countertop and the, the fry cook um, behind the, the counter. And uh, the, the, the cook comes over and asks Tony, what do you want? How about a coffee and a donut? And so he, you know, he's eating the donut, drinking the coffee. And um, a, f- a few minutes later, this group comes in, and, and a group of people, and Tony overhears this conversation of these, these people. Well, what he comes to know, it's, it's, it's a group of prostitutes. And they're, they're done with their night, and they're coming in to the, to the cafe. And he listens to him, and here's what he hears. One of them say, this, this lady named Agnes, uh, he hears her say, you know what, tomorrow's my birthday, and I'm going to be 39. And one of her friends says sarcastically to her, her name is Agnes, so what do, you, what, do you, what do you want us to do, Agnes? What do you want? You want us to, to get you a birthday cake? Is that what you want? Throw you a party or something? And, and then... Uh, Agnes says, I don't, I don't want anything from y'all. I'm just telling you it's my birthday. Why do you have to go and hurt my feelings? And then she adds, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life, and I don't expect to have one now. So Tony, Tony overhears this, and, and they, you know, they leave, and he asks the, the cook, he says, does that group come in here every night? And he says, yeah, they do. And he said, Tony says, we're going to throw a party for that lady tomorrow night. And the, the cook said, that's a great idea. Agnes, Agnes is one of the good ones. She's always doing good for other people. That would be so, that would, that would be great. And so Tony gets his birthday cake for this stranger that he's never met. None of these people he's ever met. And they come in the, the, next, the next morning, and he's got the cake says, happy birthday, Agnes, on the cake. And they come in, and, and Tony has everyone ready, 
in the, the cafe, and they all scream, Happy birthday, Agnes! And she is just stunned. I mean, she's like, she, her knees start to buckle, he says. She's so stunned. And you know, she blows out her birthday cake candles, and they sing happy birthday to her. And she's just kind of just blubbering you know, throughout all of this. And, um, and they tell her, can you, can you cut the cake, Agnes? And she's, she's like, I don't want to cut this cake. It's just like the first birthday cake I've ever gotten in my life. And, uh, um, you know, it's just this moment, and no one knows what to do next. And so Tony says, you know what? We should pray. We should pray together. And there in that hole-in-the-wall, greasy spoon restaurant, this pastor, Tony Campolo, prays for Agnes. And, and he says, I pray that her life would be changed and that God would make her a new person because we're all about the good news that God can make you new. And when he's finished, the, 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 the cook leans over the counter and says, Hey, hey, Campolo, you never told us that you were a preacher. What kind of a church do you preach at anyway? And uh, Tony says, in that moment, it just came to him. He said, I belong to a church that throws party, birthday parties to prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Tony says, I'll never forget what the cook said next to me. He says, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because I join a church like that. And Tony says, well, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all want to be a part of that kind of a church? Um, that shows that kind of reconciliation instead of that kind of alienation that says God's in the business of reconciling with you and you can be a new person. You can be a new creation of Christ. God is reconciling with you. And we want you to be a part of this family that then shares that reconciliation with the world around us. So I'd like for you to consider something as we sing a song, and then we'll we'll get out of here to go about this reconciling work. Will will you think about what God is asking you to do this morning? Um, Maybe it's for you to think really seriously about you being a citizen of God's kingdom, and your, your first responsibility of that citizenship is to share the values of God's kingdom. Or is it maybe there's someone at odd, that you're at odds with in this church family, a brother or sister, and, and you just need to go up and say, man, I'm sorry, and I, I want things to be right between us, and just have that work of reconciling. Or is it, is it just wanting to resist that idea of turning away when there's differences and, and instead kind of using that image that I gave in the last week's sermon, I'm going to turn towards someone and engage in that reconciliation. We think about that. Because when we do that and when we show loving loyalty despite differences, God does something amazing. He builds us together. And then our Lord Jesus Christ comes and dwells with us. 
with the Spirit. And invite us to be a part of God building us up like that. So will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, thank you that you do not leave us to be by ourselves in our, in our alienation. That you came and did something that only you could do. You sent your Son to be our Savior and to reconcile us, to bring us back to you. Father, may that be what our church, your church in the world, certainly, and here at Hope Church, may we be a part of that reconciling, gracious movement of yours, where indeed we come to be new creations, willing to obey you, and to live for you and to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.